Hello and welcome to season two, episode 14 of the In the Clutch podcast. My name is Drew Clutchy and I'm here alongside my co-host Jeremy Wilson. Now I'm breathing a sigh of relief right now because I just tried that intro maybe two to three times and I just couldn't get it right. I was getting the episode wrong, getting the season wrong, but that time it delivered, it delivered well, so we're going to stick with that. So if you've been watching the NBA season just like us, you're probably wondering what's going on in the Western Conference. You have the Nuggets on top, but nobody believes they're going to stay there. You have the Golden State Warriors who can't win on the road to save their lives. Anthony Davis and the Lakers are hurt like they always are. And what we're finding really interesting in the Western Conference this year is actually the Sacramento Kings. Now, the one NBA Sacramento fan must be thrilled to discover this podcast because we know there aren't many Sacramento fans out there, so they generally probably don't get a lot of content, especially in mainstream media, which we know we are. So we're going to dive a little bit into Sacramento here, and then we'll transition into some other main topics. What are you thinking of Sacramento so far this year, Jer? I have no idea. I have no belief at all. But I also watched them go to double overtime against the Clippers and just continue to score at will whenever they wanted to. Um, And Sabonis has like 50 double-doubles or something ridiculous. Um, But again, no, I can you name any Western Conference playoff teams that you think Sacramento would beat in the first round? Unless, like, exclude the opportunity that Utah makes it out of the play-in and ends up matching up against Sacramento somehow. There are no Western Conference NBA teams that I think are definitively better than other Western Conference NBA teams, with the exception of the Denver Nuggets, which I know in the last episode of the pod, I was high on Denver. I still am. But when you're looking at the Western Conference, so you've Denver at 46 and 22, Sacramento at 40 and 26 in second place, tied with Memphis. Now, Memphis is done. We're all aware of the whole John Morant thing. Um, Obviously, whether or not you think Memphis is done because of John Morant. They also don't have a backup center anymore because Steven Adams is going to be reevaluated at least after the end of the NBA season. And Brandon Clark is out for the season. So whether or not you think Memphis is done because of jaw, I believe they're out anyways because of the fact that they don't have a backup center. I can see you uh, making a signal towards me, Jeriff, so I'll let you weigh in was on it, that. Wasn't Steven Adams their starting center? Yeah, I guess so. Well, I always think of Jaron Jackson Jr. as the starting big man. Because like he's I the real he dominant force. Like yeah. Aldama, yeah, but Aldama and Clark and Adams are all interchangeable to me as to who's really the starting center. But to me, in um, Memphis's case, the starting big is really Jaron Jackson Jr. But I see, sure. I agree with your general point. But um, so I believe that Memphis is done both because one, I don't think you can have an issue like the John ja Morant scenario and come back and win. But then as a secondary thing, I don't think you can be in a situation where your starting centerman is Santi Aldama and you have Xavier Tillman off the bench, or maybe you flip that around and then try to dominate Jokic in the third round of the playoffs. So I think the Memphis Grizzlies are done. So Phoenix is uh, 37 and 30. Kevin Durant is out for at least two to three weeks. We don't really know how long that is. So they're a little bit more up in the air because obviously they just traded away all their depth for Kevin Durant. So if they have no depth and then potentially no Kevin Durant, that's it for them. In my opinion, if Kevin Durant comes back it's a whole different story, uh, Clippers are the Clippers. Clippers are going to clip as they say. So, uh, Russell Westbrook starting for the Clippers and turning the ball over 95 times a game, like he did for the Lakers, just in the different dressing room across the hallway, I guess. So that's kind of cool. Warriors who can't win a game on the road as we've already touched, but are not going to have home court advantage. So they'll have to win on the road at some point. Timberwolves bringing back Carl Anthony Towns and we don't know what's going to happen. 
uh, Doncic and Kyrie Irving with absolutely no depth around them and the eighth seed, a 500 basketball team. And then, like you said, the Jazz and the Thunder and company all don't really count in terms of making a deep run. So when you look at the Western Conference now, both on paper and in practice with the eye test, there's nobody that's going to beat the Kings, but I also don't believe the Kings to beat anybody. So I really, this is one where I've been lost for a long time and I keep expecting the Kings to drop off, especially because they have like either the worst defense in the league or one of the worst defenses in the league, but they just keep trekking on forward with the league's best offense. Yeah. And after I said that, I did pull up the standings as you were just going through it there. And like, currently they match up with Minnesota in the first round. And can I say that I think Minnesota is better than Sacramento? Absolutely not. Because I have no belief in Sacramento either. I do want to get your take on one thing, which is that I think that unless they go against Phoenix, Dallas is getting out of the first round against any of the other top four seats currently. I don't think against any of the top four seats. Top four seats. I well, top three seats, I guess, because I'm excluding Phoenix because I think I think Dallas would lose to Phoenix in a first round series if Kevin Durant was back. But I think Dallas would come out on top of Memphis, Sacramento, or Denver. I bet Dallas beats Memphis. I bet they lose to Sacramento in like seven games. Like, not I'm not going to say I definitively bet they lose to Sacramento, but I just have a feeling, you know, that I bet they can't handle Sacramento. And then, obviously, I don't think they'll beat the Nuggets because I currently have the Nuggets in the NBA Finals. I just think, obviously, right, you also like, had the Suns in the NBA Finals last year. So, pardon me. So. You had the Suns in the NBA Finals last year. Oh, no. Are you actually, like, backdating our podcast? That's bad for me. I, I you put am, it in I, research I, is problematic. I do recall having this conversation before, um, you know, Luca dropped 40 points in Game 7 and the Suns lost by 100 million. Yeah, but then they ultimately, the Mavericks ultimately got handled anyway. But what I'll say is if you just look at the Nuggets on paper and in practice against the um, against the Dallas Mavericks, it's too close in terms of what you're going to get. So from the standpoint of when everybody starts playing 38 minutes a game and the game really slows down in the playoffs because people are getting back in transition and everything, effectively, you're going to get the same from Jokic and from Luka. Because Jokic is going to be bullying people in the post in a slow game with little transition. They're both going to create lots of open passing lanes and stuff. And they're both going to have a triple-double pretty much every game. So that's effectively the same. You'll probably get more from Kyrie than you will from Jamal Murray, although Jamal Murray has also proven a great historical playoff performer. But then when you start to look at the surrounding pieces on both those teams, it's not even close with what you get from Denver. Like having Aaron Gordon, who's having a great year, Michael Porter Jr. Uh, They have Thomas Bryant is their backup now. I always mix up Bryant and Hachimura, but I think I got it right this time. So they have Thomas Bryant backing up Jokic. They just have too much skill all the way around to me. Where with the overall depth that they have, I just don't see Doncic and Kyrie being able to battle it with them for seven games when effectively Doncic and Jokic are going to be a net zero to one another. Right. And I can see I can see why you would think that. That does assume, like you said, that Doncic and Jokic are going to be net zero, which I don't agree with as long as Kyrie doesn't screw it up too much. I think Jokic or Doncic would outperform almost any, maybe any Western Conference player in any given playoff series. 
Well, Doncic could arguably outperform anybody in any playoff series. The the only person I wouldn't take Doncic over in a playoff series right now is Giannis. Yeah, the tricky thing with Giannis is the free throw shooting, though. Although I suppose the tricky thing with Doncic is defense. But like when you're looking right. at Denver's roster, I didn't even mention like KCP, who's a beautiful three and deep, Bruce Brown, Reggie Jackson. Like they just have so many pieces that even if you say the top five is pretty similar, even if you give the starting five edge or the starting t- top two edge to Dallas, going down piece and piece and piece, like player by player, it just the gap gets exponentially bigger the further you get down the roster. Right. Even and if you I only go know, eight guys deep for the playoffs. Um, I also know that, uh, like you said, um, with how deep they are and how many pieces they have, I remember watching the... Uh, Raptors Nuggets games where I know the Raptors are nowhere near the team that Denver is, but they were playing one of the best games that they had played all year. And Denver wasn't playing particularly well, but just because they had so many good pieces and so many shot makers, like they just hung around and hung around and hung around and then won the game in the last two minutes. Um and like I think that is what what depth can do is just keep you in the game until you can win the game at the end, even if your stars aren't really performing. Exactly. Well, and two things I'll note, one is totally related and one just popped into my head. And I like saying things out loud that pop into my head. The first thing is that it goes back to what I was saying last week, where a game, a team like the Lakers, for example, might have a game or something like a team like the Raptors, even with Siakam and company, like it's a good roster. They might have a game or three games in a row where you're like, wow, that's a really good team. But when you really look at the 46 win teams like Denver or 48 with Milwaukee, 47 with Boston, and you look at the their rosters. And like I said, you go eight guys deep and their eighth guy is still like a really great three and D guy or a really good secondary ball handler. And then you look at teams like the Lakers or the Mavericks and you get to their eighth or ninth guy. You really do see that's where the gap is. So, of course, if you have Doncic and Kyrie or LeBron and AD, you're definitely always going to have huge games, huge moments. Of course, these are superstar players, right? It's the same with um, like even the Knicks having guys like Julius Randle and Jalen Brunson. Like every once in a while, Julius Randle is going to hit four threes in the fourth quarter, have 34 points, and the Knicks are going to look great. But over a seven-game series, you're not going to get enough of that to really outplay a team like one of the 46, 47, 48-win teams with like all these teams are at 48 wins, and they still have a good chunk of games left. The second thing that I'll point out on the, on an unrelated topic is when you Google the Denver Nuggets roster, all of the photos of the players are either headshots or players shooting a free throw, which is basically a headshot. And then there's just Aaron Gordon wearing like yellow tinted glasses in like just a random photo. Like it looks like somebody went on Getty Images or something and just pulled up a photo of Aaron Gordon. So I like just think Aaron that's Gordon funny. Gordon as a real estate agent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, real, that's exactly it. It's real estate agent Aaron Gordon, and then everybody else looks like they play in the NBA. So I just thought that was funny. And these are the kind of gems you don't come across unless you have a podcast and you're looking at who play, who's the ninth guy on the Denver Nuggets. But that is a gem nevertheless, and I just thought I'd point it out. I think I agree with almost everything you said about those teams that even the ones that have multiple stars and multiple superstars not being able to outplay a team like one of those 45 plus win teams um, in a seven game series. 
And I agree with every team you mentioned, with the exception of the Lakers. Because I think the Lakers, with LeBron and Anthony Davis and D'Angelo Russell and Malik Beasley and all these guys, I think they have some depth, although it's not equivalent to, obviously, the depth of a roster like Boston or Denver. Um, But LeBron and Anthony Davis are absolutely just themselves capable of winning a seven-game series, even if they didn't have that kind of depth. And I would not put it past LeBron to average, you know, 30, 10, and 8, and Anthony Davis to average 30 and 16. LeBron could average 60, and I wouldn't really be surprised. I was which somewhat related again. Dame when has been on like this total tear of a series of couple weeks since basically since the All-Star game, break. Uh, like a 10-game stretch where he averaged like 45 points a game. Exactly. It was crazy. And it's basically been, like I said, since the All-Star break. But I, one of my friends was asking me about uh, what he should bet on a given night. And we were talking. I was going through all the different game options, trying to put together a good parlay for him. And one of the props I had was Dame for 40 on the parlay. But I was like, it's not even a bad prop. Like, I'm. it was not a prop that was going to, oh, it's going to pay $1,000 and that's why we'll add it. It was like a plus 300 or something for Dame to go for 40. And he shied away from it, understandably so, because it was for 40 points. So he put Dame for 30. And then Dame had a 40 piece. So his his parlay hit, but he could have even had more money because Dame could have Dame just did drop a forty piece. So similarly, based on that, with scoring the way it is now in the league, and then of course the very elite scores that exist, including guys like LeBron and Dame and everyone, LeBron could just average sixty, and I'd be like, yeah, okay, like I guess I guess that's fine. He could just hit every three he takes in a whole series, and that would just be like part of the expectation of LeBron. Mind you, of course, I'm a lot higher on LeBron than most people are. But the tricky thing I see with the Lakers and with like a variety of other teams, including the Suns, and this was something that was hotly contested on Brian Windhorst and the Hoop Collective. I recommend you go give that a listen if you haven't already. Is the fact that injuries, you can say injuries aside for something, but for certain teams, Injuries are a part of the image. So, for example, the year that Curry broke his hand after the Warriors were already going down the toilet because Kevin Durant left and Klay Thompson tore his like ACL and then his Achilles, blah, blah, blah. That was like injuries aside, the Warriors aren't that bad because Curry hadn't been hadn't had like a long series of injuries in five, six years since the whole ankle thing of 2013. So Curry had a broken hand. It's like injuries aside, the Warriors are pretty good. And then ultimately, obviously, they came back and won the championship last year. But I think when you look at, you can't look at the Lakers and say injuries aside or look at the Suns, for example, and say, oh, yeah, but if there's no injuries in the playoffs or the 76ers with Embiid and Harden, because those teams are built on part of why they were able to accumulate such good talent was because it was like fantasy basketball, basically. They traded those players away with a partial discount always in that you're trading away Kevin Durant, but you're also getting rid of the injury risk of Kevin Durant, and Phoenix takes that on. Or you're bringing in Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis has been injured his whole career, so you're taking that risk on, even though you're bringing in Anthony Davis. So I think when you're looking at teams like the Lakers and talking about them upsetting other teams, let alone the fact that they'd have to win in seven-game series, they also have to be healthy. And I don't think it's fair to say, oh, injuries aside, if they're healthy, because for them, that's a part of who they are as a team. I don't even know if 
the injuries really concern me for the Lakers. I do understand that Anthony Davis is hurt all the time. And LeBron's getting hurt seemingly more often now. I think what worries me more about the Lakers is whether or not Anthony Davis will show up to play on a given night. Because obviously Anthony Davis has shown shown flashes, especially with LeBron, of being the type of player that he used to be when he was considered a top five player in the league. And he can average the 30 and 16 and just absolutely dominate the game on offense and on defense. But then he shows up to play the Raptors and he has eight points and nine rebounds in 30 plus minutes. And he shows up against the Knicks and has like, again, nine points. And it's like, does he not know that he's a star? Does he not have interest in playing like that? Does he not want to dominate the game? I think that's my main concern for the Lakers is that if LeBron and Anthony Davis show up, then that's a great team. But who knows if Anthony Davis is going to show up even half of the time? Oddly enough, that's actually what I'm less concerned about with the Lakers because my theory is that if LeBron is out there, Anthony Davis will show up because he will have LeBron leading him. And obviously, if LeBron's out there, not out there, they're screwed. So to me, that concerns me less because I understand that Anthony Davis probably isn't your league guy. Like you said, showing up every night to score 28 points, 10 rebounds and have three blocks over and over and over again, because I feel like for him, the drive doesn't come from within as much. Obviously not to the degree of like a guy like Ben Simmons, but the drive is not there for him to lead and be the best he can every single night. But I think LeBron will be there to bring that out of him. And obviously, like I said, if LeBron's not there, then it's not happening anyway. Right. I see what you mean. I I do understand that injury concern for Anthony Davis too. And who knows like when and if the Lakers are gonna be healthy. And just that argument of well, you can only say if they're healthy for so many teams, like the Clippers with Kawhi, you kind of assume that Kawhi is gonna miss some time. Or Which Kawhi looks like a monster with... right now. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah. Um, or even the Suns with the, like Chris Paul and Kevin Durant. Like, you don't expect those guys. Like, do you really expect those guys to put together four consecutive playoff series without missing time? No. Like I said, I don't expect most people to put together four consecutive playoff series. No. You have like Kevon Looney, and that's just about it. <laughs> I can't even like that's, the, that's like a monster right now. I just pulled up the game log. It's 38, 24, 34. But he passes the he's passing the eye test too though. Well, if you say so. I haven't watched any of the Clippers last three games. I didn't even get get their one against Toronto, so Yeah, he's passing the eye test because he's back to looking like monster robot Kawhi, where he just gets to his spot and like we saw with the Raptors, and like his shot doesn't have a lot of arc on it, right? So he just gets to his spot, pushes the defender off, and just like lasers the ball into the basket like it was calculated. Like, are we sure that Kawhi is not behind chat GPT? Like, is that a thing? <laughs> because Kawhi just seems like as soon as he's on the court, he's just like, every all of his movements are so robotic, but it's so perfect. Like, it's like Clay Thompson meets LeBron James. <laughs> the precision. Kawhi shot like, really is crazy when he just goes up and the ball peaks at 10 and a half feet and he just drills it off the back rim. I know. It's like a computer is making the calculation for him and just telling him, like, at what angle to release it with how much power and just makes the ball go in, which 
I would obviously love to be able to do that. My shot looks a little bit more like think Sean Marion, where it's like, ah, sometimes I'm going to throw it over my head. Sometimes I'm going to shoot really low or like, we'll just see what happens here. So I respect Kawhi's ability to be able to precisely release the ball every time. So building on shooters, because I know we were talking about Kawhi, the shooter with the best mechanics ever, this is reasonably not contested, Clay Thompson. Clay Thompson, no matter the situation, is perfectly straight. He could like jump out of a moving NASCAR and then somehow plant his feet, take a beautifully like square to the basket fadeaway shot, even though he was moving 250 kilometers an hour. But Jer has brought forth an interesting thing, which I was very like initially for I'll give it, I would have given it 10 seconds. I was like, Jer has a point. And then I thought about it and I was like, no, Jer doesn't have a point. But I know you want to talk about it on the podcast. We'll see. I'm sure we'll hear from our listeners with regards to what they're thinking too. JR has said that he believes that Dame may be a better three-point shooter than Clay, and as such, be the second best three-point shooter of all time. Now, I don't think that's true. And like I said, for 10 seconds, I was like, whoa, that's a good take. And then I thought about it for more than 10 seconds, and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Clay Thompson, I still believe, is the second best shooter of all time. Not only because I know. We, we think of Trey, or not Trey. Well, Trey's a good shooter too, though. When we think of Clay. Um, we think of the precision, right? And like, if he gets a wide open three, even if it's a deep three, his release is so perfect, totally square to the basket, it goes in. But if you work deeply into your brain, into the inner workings, and remember all the Clay plays you can think of, you realize that Clay also hits an absurd amount of like fading shots and off the dribble shots and coming around a screen over the elbow shots and all these different things. So obviously I'm not going to argue Dame has the range. I Dame might even have the range over Curry in terms of just shooting from 42 feet, bringing the ball up the court, but play overall. Plus the fact that there are many games where he hits like 10, 11, 12 threes in a game. Plus the precision of being able to shoot the perfect form shot. Plus being able to also take all the crazy shots that we've all seen Clay make. I think that Clay's second best shooter of all time, but I'll let you make your case for Dame. Yeah, so I am going to make my case for Dame, and then I would like to make another statement that um, I may not have factored in until when I make this take, but I am still going to defend Dame for a second here. I think by level of difficulty, Dame takes more difficult three-point shots than Clay. Staff creates space for Clay. Draymond creates space for Clay. Clay does take some test shots and some fading shots. Um, but, like, the game where Clay scored 60 points on three dribbles. Like, clearly, he is taking a lot of spot-up jump shots and knocks them down at a fantastic clip. And, without question, is one one of, if not the best, just if we limit it to spot-up three-point shooters, he may be the best of all time. At least right up there with Ray Allen. Um but again, Dame does shoot from deeper, and Dame shoots off the dribble, and Dame shoots contested off of screens in a pick and roll, and all of these different things. Now, what I also want to say is I sent you this take over text after I had watched a video of Dame explaining why he thought he was second to Steph Curry. And I thought, wow, Dame makes a really good point, and Dame has a great clip of threes too and his percentage isn't that much lower than clay's um and then just now i pulled up the percentages and clay hits 41.6 percent for his career 
versus Dame's 37.3% for his career. And I would now like to retract my take because I didn't realize the difference in three-point percentage was that severe. Yeah, 4% is a big gap because it's hard to become more efficient by 4%. Which, like, I know that sounds stupid, right? But if you take 100 shots and somebody's hitting 37 and somebody's hitting 41, like, even just think about it, you in the driveway, right? If we were doing this over and over again and I was hitting four more shots than you every time, it would be hard for you to reach a point where you're hitting four more shots out of every 100, right? Or... Even more so, you'd have to be hitting six more to be hitting notably more than me. Right, and I I figured that I figured the difference was Clay at forty one and Dame at forty. And now Dame has had seasons where he has shot. Well, he had a season where he shot forty percent, and he has had seasons where he shoots thirty nine percent. If that was his career average, I think I'd give it to him. Uh, but as his career average is actually thirty seven percent. It's just not close enough to legitimately make the case for Dame as the second best shooter, maybe even third to Ray Allen. But top five is what I'm going to change my date to. Top and top five, I agree with that. One thing that I always find interesting with three point percentages is I find sometimes we confuse volume and skill with percentages. So what I mean by that is a lot of people will think, oh wow, Luca's a great three point shooter. But Luca's like a 34 and a half three point percent shooter, which obviously not bad, but and he's taking difficult shots. But if Bruce Brown was 34%, that would be bad because Bruce Brown is shooting all open corner threes. Versus Luca being 34% is not terrible because it's like a lot of fadeaways and game winners and all these different things. But I think we mix up sometimes volume and shot making with being a good three point shooter. Because when I think of guys like Luca and I take this critical lens to it. I don't think Luca's a good three-point shooter. I think he's fine. Like, Lee, obviously better than league average because he's making hard shots and he's not just shooting them all from the corner on wide open catch and shoots like a guy like P.J. Tucker, right? But I never think of Luka Doncic and other similar guys as like good three-point shooters because like Embiid's the same. I don't think, I'm just fact-checking myself as I speak here, but I don't think Joel Embiid is that good of a three-point shooter. Now, obviously, he's good for a big guy, especially like a big guy who's a superstar, seven feet tall. You can't stop him in the paint, and then he's also going to splash threes on you. But he's not like, I never think of these players as good three-point shooters, especially when you have guys like Kyle Korver and J.J. Redick and Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, Dame, all these different guys, right? Right. Now, Joel Embiid last year shot 37%, and the year before that shot 38%, which is like a... Get, like well above average clip to shoot three pointers at. Now this year he's at thirty five and a half. Right. But so I was again, just about yeah, to say I what agree is, with you. Go ahead. I was just gonna say what is he on his career, but that kind of partly answers my question, which is he had a couple of good seasons, now he's having a more so back to league average season. So on his career I imagine he's probably about the thirty five percent or whatever. But right. well it seems like he has improved over the course of his career. Like he had in a, a pretty limited time first season, uh, he shot thirty almost thirty seven percent, but then he had basically two thirty percent seasons and thirty three, and then thirty seven, thirty seven, thirty five and a half. So I think that's going to be what he's at for the rest of his career, like thirty five ish to thirty seven, which again, like like you made the point, is a totally respectable three point percentage, and 
is a good three-point percentage, and Joel Embiid I would consider a good three-point shooter, but he's not more of a fine three-point shooter than a really good three-point shooter. Like you said, they, like him and Luca and players like that are above average and are often taking shots that are more difficult than most, but they're not great shooters. Like Luca is not an elite shooter by any means. I feel like he gets labeled as such, though, depending on who you're talking to or the type of conversation you're having. And that's I think when I you find... look at him scoring like 30 points a game, you just assume, well, if he scores that at that level, he's averaging 33 points a game. So if you think 33 points a game, you think great score, great score means great shooter, especially for a guard. But when you actually look at his game, you see that he scores a lot in the paint and he makes a lot of room for floaters and finishes over bigs and things like that. Well, they're interesting on the same kind of walking the same line. Devin Booker, who I think I'll just double check, but Devin Booker, I think is a good three point shooter. But when you actually watch him play, Devin Booker doesn't take that many threes. Like Devin Booker, as soon as he catches the ball at the top or on the wing, he's always running around the screen and trying to get downhill into the mid range area which he's this season, he's 36.9%. So almost 37. So he is better than like a Luka Doncic or a bead this year. But Booker, whenever I watch him, I find he actually didn't take that many threes. Right. And Booker's, I feel like known to me, at least more of a mid-range shooter than anything else. Like Booker almost reminds me of Kevin Durant in a way. Not that their play styles are similar, but their shot selection almost. Like Booker will hit contested mid-range jump shots like an elite version of Gary Trent or like a lesser version of Kevin Trent. Or like a prime Chris Paul. In terms of just shooting. Yeah. Well, not like he's not the playmaker, obviously, like Chris Paul was. Or well, you player. could argue he's a better shooter than Chris Paul is because he's 6'6. Six, six. Right. It's easier. Probably, like Probably more efficient at taking contested jump shots than Chris Paul would be. Yeah, part of the thing, obviously, with basketball is it's easier to be tall, which I know go- seems like it goes without saying, but um, like it's a sport where if you have a higher release point, you're gonna be you're gonna have more open shots, or if your eyes are above everybody else, because frankly, that's why we can't full court press in the NBA, right? Is you should have seen when we were back in high school, like you full co- full court press Jeremy and I, and we're like running around the back court trying to make something happen, and we throw the ball out of bounds, or we like just get on the bus and start going back to Port Perry as soon as they start pressing us. But when you look at NBA teams, how do you full court press Christoph's Porzingis? Like he just holds the ball up in the air. He can pass it to anybody or Jokic or even on a smaller scale. Like if you take a guy like Devin Booker, right? If you're Drew Holiday, you're six four. Devin Booker, six six, or even smaller, like Gary Trent Jr., who's guarding Devin Booker. You can't full court press that guy. It just helps to be tall, let alone shooting when you're shooting a fadeaway and you're just, you've that higher release point and your eyes are up above the other guy's head. Right. Especially when you get to players like, I want to say Giannis, even though Giannis is an elite passer, but even like a player like LeBron, where he's, he's bigger, he's taller than you, he's stronger than you, he's faster than you, and he passes better than almost anybody we've ever seen. So it's like, what are you going to do? You're going to press him, and then he's going to find somebody wide open across the court that he wasn't even looking at for a land. Yeah, there's no way to stop it, which obviously NBA teams have historically found that out, and that's why LeBron is where he is historically. Pardon me? 
It's a nobody ever full court full court presses. Yeah, exactly. One thing that I wake up every morning and feel sad about as I go throughout my life is Ben Simmons never turned into 75% free throw shooter Ben Simmons because he doesn't even need to shoot because I would love, and obviously I don't think it'll happen now with just where his career has gone, but I would have loved to see where we had all-star Ben Simmons go into the summer and become a free throw shooter and then have like second or third team All-NBA Ben Simmons, who's the 75% free throw shooter. Kind of like Draymond Green meets LeBron James. Like, obviously, the height and athleticism and strength of LeBron and the passing of both of those guys, but then just more so the free throw shooting of LeBron. And then you would have had, like, superstar defender or power forward monster Ben Simmons. And I was just talking about that in our fantasy basketball group chat this morning, too. But that makes me, like, forever disappointed that we never got to see the true Ben Simmons. Because to this day, Ben Simmons is still overvalued on 2K. Because now you have like a 77 overall Ben Simmons where depending on how you set up your my league with your friends or how you make like I know we all do all make our own all-star teams to play against our friends, all these different things, right? If you're only allowed one guy, if you're only allowed a certain amount of guys above 80 and then you have to fill your roster out with 70s, putting Ben Simmons out there to run dunk and defend on people is just insane because he has the, the 77 value depending on what you're doing in 2K. But at the same time, he's a total monster in terms of actually using him from a video game perspective, with the exception, of course, that your buddies will foul you every 10 seconds. And currently, Ben Simmons is basically a lesser version of Michael Carter-Williams in his prime. Prime Michael Carter-Williams. That was something to be seen. It was really rookie Michael Carter-Williams, who averaged 16, 6, and 6, and Ben Simmons is averaging uh, 6, 6, and 6. Like, that's what I mean. He's six and six. He's terrible. And he still has six rebounds and six assists. Like, that's how close we are. And that's why it makes me so sad is because when you look at guys like name any fifth best guy in the starting lineup of any team or second guy off the bench of any team, six rebounds and six assists. Like, that's really, really good. Like Montrez Harrell may get six or eight rebounds. He's not getting six assists. And in any given game, he might have six points. If you trade Ben Simmons to the Warriors, make him not soft. He is a better version of Draymond Green. No, he's the best version of Draymond Green. I said, like that... I said he's better than Draymond Green. Pardon me? Uh, I, just, I said he's a better version of Draymond Green. No, but I think he would be, if you put him in the scenario, if he could fix the mental, like the mental switch about being afraid to shoot and everything, and if he turned into a 75% free throw shooter... That would be the ultimate version of Draymond Green. That would be as good as it it's could get. Prime Draymond Green. No, like better well, than Prime Draymond Green. His free throw shooting has actually gone from a 59% for his career to 43.9% this year. Well, now it's a non-factor. 43% less, is not less even a real than percentage. Like, I could go shoot with my left hand in the gym right now and be better than 43%. You could not. Zero percent. I absolutely shooting. could. I can finish, I'm a good left-hand finisher. I had to work on that because everybody realized that I could only go right, so I had to change things up. So now I only go left, but, you know, you build habits one way or the other. But I I bet I could Finishing actually shoot. It is not the same as hitting 50% left-handed free throws. It is in the free throw line. Oh, okay. I was going to go. I thought you were going to go the other way with that. Free throws, like, in theory, are free throws are easy. I'd like to see a video of you hitting 5 out of 10 left-handed free throws. 
Yeah, see, the problem is I don't think we can prove that to the listeners because there won't be like an audio. What do you want one of my friends to stand in the background? Just be like, he hit it one for one, one for two. You just have to prove it to me and I will confirm it to the listeners because I don't believe it. That works for me. I think that's a genuine approach and I bet I could do it. I'll take 10 shots and I'll hit, let's say for easy numbers, because I don't want to shoot a million shots. I'll shoot 10 shots. And if I hit four, it counts. I'm, I'm going to bet that you uh, don't hit two. Two yeah, no, I think two. I can. I honestly think I can hit four. The tricky thing with me, though, is I'm actually not that good of a free throw shooter. Like, in a, I obviously look like I'm, well, I guess a lot of people haven't probably have, haven't seen me play basketball in a long time, but I'm a great three point shooter. And in theory, I'm a good free throw shooter. And sometimes I can go hit like seven in a row. But when you average all my numbers out over all the free throws I take when I'm practicing or in scrimmages or whatever, I still only equal out to like 70%. Like I'm not really, I always think of myself as like, oh, I'm a good free throw shooter. Not really. I was like forever at 50% free throw shooter. It was miss the first, make the second. Which that's not a bad way to do it. Like obviously not for an elite level or for like super competitive, but like if you're just at the gym, I feel like most people are make one miss one. Yeah, you make the adjustment after you miss the first one, and then you gotta do it all over again every time you go through that one. But the thing I'll never understand, and this is like it'll forever sit in my head, which is why I guess I said never. But how are you in the NBA and you really can't do it? Because free throw shooting, I acknowledge a lot of things. It is your are really job. different at the NBA level versus at our level, and I can't even understand the nuances and the differences. Obviously, you've just been thrown onto the ground by Joel Embiid. There's 20,000 people screaming at you, but to be fair to compensate, it's also your full-time job, like you were saying. So there's like some equality there, but like it's still a 15-foot distance. It's still a 10-foot tall basket, and there's 20,000 people. It's your full-time job, and you can't hit more than... 55% for some of the bad shooters, 65% like Giannis is, was for a while. I know he's above 70 now, I think. It boggles my mind that they really just can't make that work. Yeah, Can you not take one offseason and shoot 100 free throws a day and fix your problem? I'm sorry. Can you not yeah, 1,000 free throws a day? More than that? I don't even think it would take that much is what I'm saying. Like, I think this is an easy fix. And I somewhat believe that other than Ben Simmons who has clearly like crazy I don't know what it is like cannot shoot free throws because of some mental aspect of his game. I think every other player that is not shooting a good percentage from the free throw line just isn't trying. Uh, You think that's it? It's just they're not giving it enough? They're not at the free throw line in the off season and in practice. They're just not trying to get better. To be fair, maybe it's because when they try to go to the free throw line, people keep putting ladders underneath the basket, so then they can't truly really get in a good number of practice practice shots. Um, I know Giannis tends to struggle with that a little bit, so I can't put that all on him. There's nothing you can do about the grounds crew, I guess. Well, he can try to fight them. That that worked pretty well. So so did the Nassus, I think. Yeah, well, and personally, so I worked for Lakehead Athletics for a season and a half doing kind of similar things, helping and you're set up. Yeah, and I never threw a ladder at a person, nor did I try to hit them with a ladder. I just did my job, took the bleachers down. I never once tried to throw a ladder at somebody or stick the ladder in their way or keep repeatedly putting the ladder in the way. But what would you do if when you were trying to take the bleachers down, an opposing player wanted to run the bleachers for practice? 
I wouldn't put a ladder in his way. Like, you want to know what I'd do? This is what I would do. I would go get my supervisor and be like, what is the plan here? But I would not instinctively put a ladder in front of him. Yeah, that Graham remember really sold out. He was like, no, I run this show. You will not move my ladder. It's going back. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like that was, So maybe that's the excuse for the NBA players. They really can't get enough free throw opportunities up. Which, to be every fair... Time, one... Every time Giannis tried to practice free throws in the offseason, some member of the Grand Screw just walked out and put the ladder in play. Yeah, literally. One thing that I do acknowledge, which I didn't realize this until after COVID, was a lot of players actually do struggle to get shots up to an extent. And especially this is prevalent during COVID. Because I know we all think of NBA players as like having a court in their apartment or whatever. But like a lot of players like live in downtown New York in a high rise building. They're like, I don't have a basketball court within X amount of kilometers of my house. Now, obviously, they're really rich and they could just Uber or limousine wherever they want to go kind of thing to get shots up. So it's not per se an excuse. But I also acknowledge that it's not like we think it is as fans where just because if I had $20 million, I would go build a basketball court everywhere I went. That doesn't mean that they all have constant 24 hours access to basketball courts wherever they are in any city in North America. You just build a build a basketball a personal basketball court in every NBA city. So no matter where you go, you can practice. Just well, you could do what they did from Michael Jordan with Space Jam, where when he was filming Space Jam, they just like built a basketball court wherever he needed one. Is that really what they did? Well, so the Space Jam wow. thing, I, I'm not going to quote where it was being filmed, like obviously probably in LA or in Orlando or something. I don't actually know though. But if you watch, yeah. it was in The Last Dance, I think, where they built a whole like dome environment like you see for tennis and stuff. And they put a basketball court in it right on the premises. So NBA players would come out all summer, like your guys like Reggie Miller and stuff like that. And they'd play scrimmage games after Michael had finished recording space jam so he'd like come off the set and go onto the basketball court that they built on the premises specifically for that huh interesting yeah neat little factoid there if you're into nba lore in addition to what's happening on the court interesting so the last thing i think we'll have to hit on because i know we're probably coming up on the 40 minute mark maybe here um phoenix suns which i know we touched on it a little bit early on but we can go a little bit more in depth in it now do you write off the phoenix suns if kevin durant is gone if Kevin, are we assuming Kevin Durant is back for the playoffs? Uh, let's say he's back, but comes back to start game one. So, like, doesn't get any warm-up time. Then I think that the Suns almost can't win a championship. Almost. Almost can't? Almost can't. I, I think at that point, they would not be... If Kevin Durant was healthy now... The Suns would be my favorite to come out of the West. Right. And when they got there, I think they would be um, not like they would be the underdog against whichever team comes out of the East, be that Boston, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, whatever. I think they'd be the underdog against that team. But once you get to the championship, you got Kevin Durant, you got Kevin Book- Devin Booker, you got Chris Paul, you got DeAndre Ayton, you have a chance. I think if Kevin Durant misses the rest of the regular season, they're no longer my favorite to get out of the West, which almost eliminates their chance of winning a championship. The Devin and Kevin thing really messes me up. I haven't like worked that out in my head. So it's one of those things. 
Well, and especially too, they're like totally different in terms of like one's a six six guy and the other's six eleven. They're both great scorers. Kevin Durant's a superstar. Devin Booker's an all star. So like in theory, in my head, they should be different people. It's not like Jalen Williams and Jalen Williams, where they're both like young players in in Oklahoma. So I'm like, I don't know who these people are. But when you see Devin and Kevin, in theory, I should be able to differentiate them. But in casual conversation, I'm like, I just trip trip over my words basically every time which I suppose I'm unfamiliar with and doing in my personal life too. So it's just when your brain is moving so fast, so many words want to come out, but you can only get so many of them. So that's kind of the tricky thing to balance. But I would agree with you that I think if Kevin Durant doesn't play again in the regular season, which it doesn't look like he will, then that's basically it for the Suns for this year, just because of all the depth that they gave away. Which, by the way, that depth is shining in Brooklyn yeah, on a Brooklyn rotating basis. Yeah, Brooklyn's above 500. Now, they yeah, lost well, like four games in a row, but since they've won four out of five. And My it's God. interesting because Kyrie Irving is arguing that he did his job because he left them in such a good position. But now he's actually looking kind of right because Brooklyn's still in a good position. And obviously, Brooklyn not going anywhere. But nevertheless, guaranteed first round exit is Brooklyn. guaranteed first round exit. But they are actually they might holding still end on up the top six seed in the conference. So I think they probably will because the advantage you have when you see when. A team like Brooklyn trades away Kevin Durant. You have to remember that they get assets back. So you're in the situation where bringing in like Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson, those are two good players that are trying to earn their keep in the NBA. So they are going to try hard to get better. They're going to get the most shot opportunities they've ever had. And then you bring in also a guy. Yeah, but if he starts to develop now, he'll play more like big, big minutes going forward. And like, Lots of touches, right? So he's the opportunity to, even though he's already been paid, to make himself right. an all-star level player. And then he's he'll get paid. First chance to be the guy for a team. Yeah, and then you bring in guys like Cam Thomas too, like who's already there, but now same thing. He'll see a big minutes bump. That these teams are still going to try hard. So I find there's always a difference between a team that is bad and a team that's working on it. Because when you look at like the Houston Rockets with all the injuries they've had, they're bad. But when you look at the Orlando Magic, they're working on it. Where Orlando like has some pieces and they're starting to play real basketball and just not everybody's at their peak yet. So on a given night, somebody will have a super hot night and Orlando's going to win. And it's like, wow, what a great game by the Magic. They're still like not a great team, but they're trying to get better versus some of those really bad teams at the bottom where you're just like, they're not even worth watching in the slightest because you have no idea what they're doing. Like that to me is a whole different game. So when... A team like Brooklyn, like Detroit's another example with Kate Cunningham being out, right? But when you have a team like Brooklyn who brings assets back for Kevin Durant, they're still going to be able to make a dent in terms of just like regular season games because all these guys are going to try hard to improve themselves. Of the teams, like you mentioned Orlando and you mentioned Detroit and you mentioned Houston, of those kind of teams, the young teams that are not We'll say really not good now. So I'm going to eliminate the Thunder, who are, you know, near ish 500. Um, Pacers, Magic, Hornets, Pistons, Spurs, Rockets. Which team do you believe most in going forward? I don't think it's fair to put the Pacers in that category because Tyrese Halliburton. Part of me? They're 31 and 37, and Tyrese is like 21 years old. Yeah, but the Wizards are also 31 and 37. You didn't put them in the category. And 
assuming these teams are young. The Wizards have Bradley Beal. Uh, yeah, they're but, not calling them a young team. The Pacers are already 31 and 37. They have Miles, they have a real point guard who's leading the league in assists in Halliburton. They have a great shooter in Buddy Heald, and they have a real starting center in Miles Turner. To me, the and Pacers are most of the Pacers. Pardon me. I said, say you believe most of the Pacers. Yeah, but that I don't think that's a fair question because you fine. want to pose a question. The Pacers. Pardon me. I said, fine, eliminate the Pacers. Okay, I'm glad we're in agreement on that. Even though the look on your face says you just want to stop talking to me and finish this call. Um, so. If we go on that, I believe most in the Hornets. Because of LaMelo? Because of LaMelo. I think out of those bottom teams, uh, Pistons, which obviously Cade's great. Uh, Jalen Green has the potential to be great. Uh, as you said, Oklahoma's not included because they have Shea and Chet. And like obviously Chet hasn't played yet, but that'll make them better. Josh Giddy. So when you look at like the really the bottom four tanking teams, Hornets, Pistons, Spurs, and Rockets, I think I'd bet on LaMelo. And one of them gets Vic, too. Lamelo plus Vic. Be well, comedy. Vic going to anywhere. I just hope Vic doesn't go to Houston because I feel like they're going to ruin one Vanyama for the rest of us. Yeah, yeah. Houston and the Spurs is like, please don't send them there. No, I'm fine with the Spurs because they have actual like organ- organizational culture and Kelton Johnson. Well, so that's fine. Kelton Johnson is fine, but like Greg Popovich is going to retire and who knows who replaces them and like, just yeah, keep but, them in situations that already have legitimate promising players. But is putting him in, like, I guess putting him with LaMelo is better, but I don't think Charlotte, in terms of organization, is better than putting him with the Spurs. No, I'm talking about, like, player-specific. Put him in a place where he's not the only guy forever. Yeah, but then you could argue you should put him in um, Houston. Because of Jalen Green? Well, and Kevin Porter Jr., but they already have Alfred Sengun. And what happens to Sengun if they draft Wembenyama? Well, you just play Wembenyama with anybody. Imagine He's seven Kevin... foot Sengun is like Jokic, but seven foot five Victor Wembenyama. Be wild. Wembenyama is like, I'm so excited for Wembenyama just from as a on a as a fan perspective. It's gonna be so exciting to watch. Like I was really excited for Chet, and I was really sad when Chet got hurt this year because Shea plus Chet. Would have been an exciting season. And now I feel like Chet's one season behind because the Thunder are really like acceptable this year and Chet's not a part of that. So now I feel like they're one season behind the timeline they could be on. But nevertheless, I was excited for Chet and Wemin Yama is like Chet except five inches taller. You, you never hope a player gets injured and you never like it's always bad, but the Chet injury was kind of hilarious. Because it was like, how high should Chet go in the draft with the injury concerns? Should he be drafted one? Maybe not. Should he, maybe two? Maybe two. And the Thunder were like, no, we've got him at two. And then two weeks later, out for the season. It's like, oh, see, this is why. I think I would be a terrible GM because I wouldn't be able to stand the injuries. Like, going into the draft and being like, oh, yeah, we picked this guy and we're really optimistic about the future of our franchise. And then, boom, nothing. Like, for a whole year, you get nothing from him because he's out. And then, like, next season, he's going to come back. And if he misses, let's say he plays 10 games and then misses 10 games just on a fluke thing, like jams his thumb or whatever, or twists his ankle, then you're going to be like, crap. Like, this is it. And obviously, when you look at the overall length of their career, this will be a little blip in it, right? Like, look at Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid's now incredible. He's in the running for MVP, though he won't win it. But nevertheless, now you forget 
or at least you try your best to forget about the injury seasons at the start of his career. But you have to hope that it doesn't become a narrative, at least in the short term, because it's like you said, you never wish for a guy to get injured. And frankly, I just really want to see all these people play. You said Joel Embiid won't win the MVP. And currently, I agree with you. What if the 76ers right now have 45 wins, the Bucks at the top of the East have 48, um, Denver has 46. What if Philadelphia finishes as the one seed in the Eastern Conference? Then I think Embiid could absolutely win MVP. I just think that is unlikely, of course, just statistically that they beat a lot of the teams they have to play still. Even if they beat all the easy teams, they're probably still going to lose a few to some of the better teams that they have to play in the Romania schedule. So I think it's unlikely. As I say that, I'm going to take a look at the 76ers' remaining schedule. Yeah, I, I just pull up. Um, of this 76ers have the second hardest strength of schedule remaining in the league. They so notable play, games. That, they do so they have... play Milwaukee, Boston, and Denver, though. So if they so all... win those games... That goes a long way to helping them finish as a one seed. So I'll dive through it right here. Keep track of how many games they win. So Cleveland's a 50-50. So for this 50-50, we'll say they lose. So they're at zero. They're going to beat the Hornets. They're going to beat the Pacers. They're going to beat the Bulls twice. Uh, The Warriors are 50-50. Since we gave the last 50-50 a loss, we'll call this one a win. That's five wins. They're probably going to lose. Pardon me? Do they play the Warriors in Philadelphia? Uh, it doesn't say it's at 10 p.m., so it has to be on. It has to be at home for the okay, Warriors. Okay, fine. Then 50-50, yes. So, and then we'll call that one a win. The Suns are 50-50, so we'll call it a loss, just alternating back and forth. They're gonna lose to the Nuggets, presumably, just based on that's a team that's above them in standings. They beat the Mavs last time, and Joel Embiid outplayed Jokic. Yeah, but I don't think that'll happen again. Just that's a because, one or, game standing difference. Work with me on the standings, though. Yeah, but that's currently one game. We have to we have to figure it out somehow just to estimate. So they're gonna. If we are estimating. We're just gonna assume the standings stay the same because every team higher in the standings will win all the games. Every team lower in the standings will lose all the games. Well, they'll win the same percentage of their games. So based on that estimation, Milwaukee will not lose again for the remainder of the season. Okay, it's not a you have to entertain the thing for the schedule. I'm not gonna go through and work out the exact math. Just let me let me get to the end and we'll see. So they've currently won five games. They're gonna 50-50 the Mavericks, but it we're on the win side, so that's six. They're gonna beat the Raptors, that's seven. Uh they're gonna lose to the Bucks, so there's still seven. They're gonna lose to the Celtics, that's seven. They're gonna 50-50 the Heat, and it's a win this time, so that's eight. They're gonna beat the Hawks nine, they're gonna beat the Nets, that's ten wins. So what does ten wins put them at overall in the season? They'd be 55. Yeah. 55 wins. Now, the Bucks only need seven wins to also hit 55 and presumably yes, have an easier schedule. The Bucks would beat the Sixers. And in the case where the Sixers are going to be the one seed, they can't lose to the Bucks. Yeah, but the Sixers winning 10 of their remaining 15 games is 66% of their wins versus how many games have they won right now? Just give, like, what percentage? I don't know, they're 45 and 17. So 45 divided by... 70 It would mean they keep the exact same winning percentage. The math we just did, put them at the exact same winning percentage and put them at 55 wins. They're, I, I, I see your general point, but they're unlikely to win more than 67% of their games. Right. And, but, hard Milwaukee, it is to... but 
Right. I see I see your point. My point was that they play Milwaukee and Boston. The two teams above them are two of the remaining 15 games. So there is a clear path to them being the one seed. Minus the fact that they still have the hardest strength of schedule. That is a clear path. If you didn't play Milwaukee and Boston, it would be a more difficult path than playing them. That's correct. I acknowledge that. So my point is not that they will likely be the one seed. It's that if they are the one seed, is it and Embiid's averaging 32, 12, and you know, four as he does, and Jokic is averaging 26, 12, and 10. Who's your MVP? I think you can give it to Embiid if he beats Jokic and if Philly becomes the one seed. But I think even if Philly becomes the one seed, if Jokic balls out in the head-to-head game and beats them, it'll still go to Jokic. If Philly doesn't become the one seed, is that what you said? No, if Philly does become the one seed, yeah. but Jokic beats Embiid in the one game mm-hmm. they have remaining against each other, I think you still give it to Jokic. But if they That's become great. the one seed and Embiid right. beats Jokic, then Embiid gets the MVP. Because Embiid, I think, did kind of dominate Jokic last time. And when the odds for MVP are so tilted towards Jokic right now, you got to dominate him again to have any chance. Exactly. Because the narr- uh, whether or not like media likes to acknowledge it, the narrative is just so strong in this case for Jokic. And I think the narrative always is always going to play a part. That's just how I feel about it. Regardless, I find we can't look at it in a vacuum. We're always going to take a look at what's happening and what everybody else is thinking, what we're hearing on the podcasts. For our case, what we're saying on the podcast. So there's just kind of a lot of different elements that play into it for sure. Which I think that's part of what makes the MVP award so entertaining to watch it play out. But anyways, that's all we have for episode 14 of the In The Clutch podcast. I may not have got it right on the way in, but I'm going to get it right on the way out. So that's what's important. Um, We'd like to thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.